This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portsale. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we are discussing the career of War Machine himself, uh, Don <laughs> Cheadle. Andrew, run down his history. Don Cheadle was born in Kansas City, Missouri in 1964. He became interested in acting in high school and went on to study it at the California Institute of the Arts. His film debut came in Moving Violations in 1985. Cheadle worked steadily in the early 1990s before coming to widespread attention in Devil in a Blue Dress. The late 90s into the 2000s was a golden period for Cheadle as he appeared in highly successful films like Volcano, Rush Hour 2, Boogie Nights, Traffic and Ocean's Eleven. In 2004, he was nominated for an Oscar for his portrayal of Paul Rusesa Bagina in Hotel Rwanda. In 2006, he co-starred in the Best Picture winning Crash... In 2010, Cheadle replaced Terence Howard as James Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a role he has held consistently for the last 12 years, and in which he will reprise in the Disney Plus series Armor Wars. In 2011, he played an FBI agent opposite Brendan Gleeson's Garda in The Guard. 2016 saw the release of his directorial debut Miles Ahead, based on the life of jazz maestro Miles Davis, which Cheadle also wrote and starred in. In 2021, he starred in Steven Soderbergh's latest heist thriller, No Sudden Move, as well as playing villain Al G. Rhythm in Space Jam, A New Legacy. I only realised that Al G. Rhythm was was algorithm today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Cheadle is an activist with with a view to ending genocide in Darfur and stopping climate change. Yeah, Cheadle was my pick, and uh, I followed your method in that I chose him because... I noticed he was in a lot of movies that I had wanted to check out or revisit. And um, yeah, he's worked with a lot of great directors. I do think, though, he's one of those rare actors who is a character actor in that like, he mostly plays supporting roles and he can play heroes and villains. It can be funny and dramatic, but he's pretty famous and well-liked by just being consistently great mm. and bringing a lot of presence to his more showy characters or soul to his more quieter ones. And obviously it helps that he's in the MCU and the Oceans movies with that. Although the Oceans trilogy like that's weirdly like his most disputed part because of the british accent yeah i like it i like it too mm. i think he has the energy overcomes the accent yeah he brings yeah just but proof of him being so well loved was that like there was that thing recently where he he had a 98 second cameo on the falcon and the winter soldier and uh, he got an emmy nomination for it <laughs> in like best guest actor in a drama series and um yeah i think that's a real like we respect you and your work by the emmy community but he it was very funny and he tweeted after the nominations came out i don't really get it either <laughs> and um i know the reason i thought it might be cool to cover him was that one of his recent roles i think provides a nice contrast to one of his first major roles and so i'll get into that later but there's some nice symmetry there in his career but uh, do you like Cheadle? i do like Cheadle. yeah i hadn't realized how much i kind of i how much i'd seen him hmm. until this came around because i'd already seen two of the movies that we were that i was going to cover <laughs> right. for this but your favorite movie is space jam a new legacy so you have to stand my my Let's get into that later, Stephen. Yeah, sure. uh, do you want to kick off? I think the earliest movie we're covering, you watched Hamburger Hill. I did, yeah. Which has got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I never heard of it. For some reason, I can't really fathom, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so Don Shadle plays Private Elliot Washburn, a soldier of the 501st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army. So he fought in the Battle of Hamburger Hill that took place during the Vietnam War in 1969. And it's kind of like, oh, what if the cast of Dawson's Creek fought in Vietnam? Because it's like everyone in it just looked, which is good, I think. Is it uh, Dylan McDermott? Is the other Dylan guy? McDermott is yeah. like the lead. I could see him. It's He's like an American debut. horror yeah. story kind of guy. Like, yeah, I could see He's him just being been in Dawson's Creek. TV's dad for 35 years, and <laughs> yeah. that he just hasn't aged in 35 years. God, I want those genes. But yeah, everyone in, everyone else in the cast, like even the officers, look kind of like 29, 30, 31, and then all the reg- rest of the regular soldiers look like they're, you know. 19 to 23 which is good for a Vietnam movie because a lot of the soldiers were very young and died very young as well and that's why it starts off promising who kind of re- thanks to all these young actors that really sell like the youthfulness and naivety of the soldiers and like just on Cheadle he's basically a glorified extra in this movie like he's in a lot of scenes but I think he has maybe three or four lines he's in the on the poster it's crazy. It's like Don Cheadle and Dylan McDermott. Hamburger it's mad. Hill. Maybe, but it was a thing maybe, that came out after he had become famous. Right. Okay. Maybe, yeah. But I don't know. Um, well, yeah, it was like one of his first roles. And uh, like he does good work considering he has so little to work with. 
Like he's in it more than his ninety-eight second cameo um, in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It was such a good cameo. Like they talked in a museum for a few seconds. <laughs> That's what it is. Okay. No. That sucks, and like even with his uh, his interaction with his fellow African American soldiers, uh, Motown played by Michael Boatman and Doc played by Courtney B Vance, who's very good. He's in a this. great actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, really reminds me of uh, Jackson Harper for some reason. A little bit. Yeah, I know. Uh, especially most... especially in Hamburger Hill. Right, I know yeah. him mostly. He played Johnny Cochran in the O.J. Simpson miniseries. Okay, he's yeah, really good in yeah. it. Yeah, but he really reminds me of Jackson Harper in specifically Midsummer and a movie that's on Shudder now called They Remain, which is uh, very weird and good and based on a story by one of my favourite authors, Laird Barron, that people should check out. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, and he, his in, but his interactions with these guys feel very kind of perfunctory and hollow for some reason. Like, it's, it, he's never... He doesn't really have much of a personality, whereas every other uh, soldier, near, nearly every other soldier is like, oh, I got a girl back home, or, you know, I just can't wait to... You know, it's real, like, clichés and platitudes and all this kind of crap. And I can't understand why at all it's uh, got, like, 100% Rotten Tomatoes, but I completely understand why it's been fucking totally forgotten. (laughs) Because, like, in comparison to, like, Platoon or Apocalypse Now or... Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket, or even We Were Soldiers. Yeah. It's like, all right, this, this movie is nothing. Essentially, like Dylan McDermott's and the white, white young white casts kind of movie. It's not really meant for the African. Like they get a little bit here and there, but they're not. Uh, they wouldn't be even supporting characters, or they're barely supporting characters as it is. Uh, and even though, even the this young white cast and Dylan McDermott, they never really feel like real people in the way that the cast of Platoon or Apocalypse Now would be. Because like even Tony Todd has like a couple of lines in, Ap- Keith in Platoon or, or Keith David, yeah. And you're just like, oh man, these guys really sell it. Hmm. Without having to go into, oh man, I got a girl back home or I can't wait to sit in the porch and enjoy a beer and a hot dog. John C. Riley sells his character in Kong Skull Island better than... The characters in this, the people in this movie. Say casualties of War, the Brian De Palma movie. Oh, well, yeah. I hadn't seen that. No. Yeah. Okay, well, um, maybe maybe he does. I think he's pretty good yeah. at that. Yeah, yeah, it's like that Simpsons joke where it's like, I'm gonna buy a boat called Live Forever, <laughs> <laughs> and they get killed. Um, well, we move on to like a good movie then. Sure, A Devil yeah. in a Blue Dress, yeah. set in the summer of 1948 in Los Angeles. A Black World War II veteran named Ezekiel Easy Rollins, played by great name, the terrific Denzel Washington. Sign up to our um, heads for plus for an episode all about Denzel Washington. But um, basically, Easy is in need of a job, and upon hearing this, this um, shady fixer, played by Tom Sizemore, approaches him in a bar and offers him a lot of money to track down a woman named Daphne Monet, played by Jennifer Beals. Um, who's this politician's girlfriend who's disappeared but has said to have been frequenting bars and nightclubs in black neighborhoods. However, while the task seems um, simple enough at first, you know, the bodies begin to stack up and Easy becomes uh, entangled in a mystery. What happened? I had no time to be tying him up easy. What? Look, you just said don't shoot him, right? That's right. Well, I did, and I just, I, I choked him. What? Well, how am I going to help you out if I'm, if I'm back here fooling around with him now? Easy, look, if you ain't one to kill, why'd you leave him with me? Um, what do you think of this? I really loved it. It's really I great, I thought it was great, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, like, I think it's a film full of characters you just want to see again, regardless of whether they die or not in the movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And uh, I think it's, uh, obviously, it's a very unique perspective on, like, the traditional kind of hard-boiled detective character in that we, it's pretty rare you see, like, a, black version of that character of some of someone maybe not Hum- Humphrey Bogart but, but you're, you, yeah you're sort of kind of um, what's his Philip Marlowe or Sam yeah, Spade more type. like Elliot Gold's version of Philip Marlowe or something like that a bit more shaggier yeah yeah, yeah. For sure. because he's not even like a professional PI yeah you, you rarely know? you rarely ever see him in like a, a suit or anything like he might wear the hat but he's always wearing his old like Air Force jacket over like a vest with suspenders and slacks and I think maybe this was the Denzel franchise that we really deserved because I, li- I don't get me wrong, I like the Equalizer series, but like, I would pay top dollar for like five of these movies. Because it's the first book in a series of novels by Walter Mosley, mm. and it, it seemed like his attempt at making a sort of a noir protagonist that African American audiences could relate to, because mm. a lot of the mysteries were more related to racial inequality and yeah, uh, you know, 
yeah, societal issues, which is what the mystery is ultimately revealed yeah. to be about in Devil in a Blue Dress. And um, it got great reviews, but didn't make that much money yeah. in the box office, which is a real shame. Yeah. What gets me about this movie, uh, just when watching it, the scenes where Easy is at home in the house that he owns. He's one of the, the movie makes a point that he's one of the few African-Americans to actually have a mortgage and own his own house. Um, is that he lives in like, he lives in the Watts neighborhood, which is more famous for like the Watts riot of nineteen of the nineteen sixties than for anything really else really, but the movie just makes it look like kind of like white picket fence paradise essentially, mm. but populated entirely by black people, which I think is like really nice and you know unique. Yeah, and that was just one of the details I thought was that really struck me about the movie because it, it really is uh, such a homage to 40s and 50s noir, mm. noir not just the fact that it's about like a PI who gets involved in a mystery but like it has like really poopy narration mm. and some of the like edits like there's a bit where at the beginning where it like flashes back to how he lost his job and it li- the camera literally goes like like water like kind of becomes waves like, yeah, yeah. and then it like flashes back and um, I really love all that stuff but um, I do think it's kind of given a bit extra edge by Having a black protagonist yeah, yeah. and, you know, having and a, a mostly black cast. Yeah, and a perspective that you wouldn't ever get to see in a 40s and 50s movie. Yeah. Also, a lot of sex and swearing as well. Like, it's kind of a hot movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Tom Sizemore is the villain. You're like, yes, I can enjoy this performance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's a movie of just great vibes. Like, I love the clothes, like the dialogue, the intrigue. And, you know, it feels kind of atmospheric and, like, intoxicating. But I do think that what makes it more than just a tribute to old noirs on top of like Denzel Washington being so charismatic and um, the elements of the story about race in America is this like really electric kind of darkly comic performance by a real late in the game Don Cheadle. Yeah, halfway through. Yeah. I was was constantly waiting for him and then when he shows up he just does not disappoint. Absolutely not. And like, how would you describe him? Like very loyal and supportive if like incredibly volatile. (laughs) Yeah, I have gold tooth ne'er do well with the love of guns and sharp suits. Yes. Charming but short-tempered. Yeah, that, those 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 pretty much cover the bases, yeah. Because, you know, there's this part in the movie where Easy's been betrayed by the people he works for, been arrested and mistreated by the cops, been double-crossed by his friends, and he, he feels like he's no one to turn to in LA, in L.A. So he calls this character Mouse, played by Cheadle, to come help him. And I think prior to this, it's been implied throughout the movie that Washington's character Easy might have come to L.A. from Texas, partly just to get away from Mouse, mm. because, you know, he's, we learn he's incredibly trigger-happy. A man who likes to shoot first to then think. Mm. But that might be what Easy needs in that situation. Yeah. And like I think the introduction to Mouse is amazing where like Easy's wrestling with this gangster and is about to have his throat slit and Mouse pops out of nowhere and puts a gun to the gangster's head and asks really calmly, like, You want me to shoot this son of a bitch? <laughs> and then in the same scene, like Easy's trying to get information off the gangster who's named Frank and he's he's getting nowhere and Mouse says, Let me try something. He's like, Frank, is your name Frank, right? As if he's about to, you know, say something and then just pulls out another gun and <laughs> shoots him <laughs> shoots in the shoulder. Yeah. And then he... <laughs> Dan tells him, you ain't even been in my house five, five minutes and you don't shot somebody. <laughs> and he, like, the guy, like, runs off after and he's like, couple of my coat, easy. That's a damn expensive coat. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's the victim in all yes. this. Yeah, I was trying to synthesize what makes this performance pop so much. And I think it's because... He plays Mouse less as an out-and-out kind of unhinged person who loves killing people, which he does. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> but he's more the kind of, like, the type of friend you have who is fun and charismatic but a bad influence. Yeah. Like, the devil on your shoulder. Like, the kind of guy where you're like, oh, I need, I should really go home. You're in take, college. Take that last shot. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I need to go home and study yeah. pints. You know, like, that <laughs> yeah, kind of guy, yeah, like, yeah. after sesh, you know. Yeah. He's that pushed to an extreme, which gives all the scenes, like, a really interesting energy because, like, he is both likable and also very menacing, mm. you know. I just love all those scenes where Denzel Washington will be threatening someone for information and it's very tense and Cheeto's just like grinning and laughing in the background like yeah. the boys are back together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that great bit where um, one of the people they're interrogating goes to get up and leave and Cheeto like moves his jacket to show he has a gun and just flashes with that big toothy grin with the gold teeth yeah. and is like, sit down, Junior. Like he's like really enjoying it. Yeah, It's just like a character, I've never seen one of these movies who's introduced pretty late in the game but, like, aside from wanting to help his old friend, isn't really connected to the main story. So, like, it's been pretty life or death for Denzel's character. And, like, he's been trying to, like, come out, come up with a way to kind of delicately get himself out of yeah, the mess yeah. he's found himself in. And then just, like, Mouse comes into the movie and, like, does not feel any need to be diplomatic. He's like, <laughs> I'll just shoot anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, really great. Yeah, I love the part where um, he... He tells Mouse that they could, or- they could earn $7,000. And he's the man is... This... 
normally like rapid fire, quite talkative guy is just rendered speechless. He's like, oh my God. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love the bit where um, Easy kidnaps one of the other, his other friends who betrayed him so that the, <laughs> the guy can take him to like the villain's hideout. Mm. And Easy goes in to rescue Daphne, but he leaves Mouse with the guy and he's like, don't shoot him. But there's a point where like Mouse has to go in to help Easy. Yeah, yeah. And after they're heading back to the car, the guy's dead. And he's like, what happened? And Mouse frustratingly is like, I had no time to be tying him up. <laughs> you just said don't shoot him, right? Well, I choked him. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, what? <laughs> I, but I love that there's like one line he has in the movie, which is kind of like delivered, kind of completely devoid of joy or humor. And the bit where he's like, if you didn't want him killed, why would you leave him with me? <laughs> and it's like, it's that kind of like scorpion and the frog thing where yeah. it's like, it's in my nature. Yeah, like, yeah. This is what I do. You can't call me and not expect this, you know? <laughs> uh, and I, I just think it's such an interesting dynamic because like you're so used to having best friend characters in movies who don't have much interiority that sort of just exist to help the hero. Yeah. But I think what's fascinating about Cheadle playing Mouse is that the, there's so much boiling under the surface that like the barely the movie barely has time to like scratch at. <laughs> and there is a sort of genuine tension that Mouse may a- not actually help Easy but might actually make things worse for mm, him. You know, yeah. and like there's even that amazing scene where I'm not sure if Mouse is like drunk or sleepwalking or having like a moment of psychosis or something but like Easy goes to wake Mouse up I think he just pulls a gun on him. Yeah. It's like a minute long scene and Denzel Washington has to kind of like talk him out and he's sort of in like a fugue state of yeah. being like, yeah. it's really like the threat is suddenly like not just external, but internal. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really cool. And I, I think like, I love old noirs, but because they're made on sound stages, there's never really a lot of kind of like adrenaline pumping action. Like they more rely on like atmosphere yeah. and surprising people with their stories. And I think, Despite not being made on sound stages, Devil, all the, uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, I almost said Devil all the time, the <laughs> other movie, Devil in a Blue Dress is similar to them in that respect. But I do think Cheadle as Mouse gives the movie like a significant energy boost. Yeah. And just makes it come alive as opposed to being just kind of like a well-mounted homage to mm. older style of cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Boogie Nights? Sure. Don Cheadle plays Book Swope, a porn actor with dreams of opening his own stereo equipment store. Due to his past, he's refused bank loans and struggles to come up with the money to support himself and his pregnant wife, Jessie St. Vincent, who's played by Melora Walters. And against the backdrop of this lovely, intimate, sweet story is uh, Dirk Diggler's Descent into Cocaine and Madness, uh, accompanied by Reed Rothschild and Amber Waves. None of that matters in terms of what we're discussing now. <laughs> now, look, this, this isn't a new business for me, all right? It's a real thing that I want to do. It's a real thing that I can do. Please. I'm sorry. We did everything okay, right. Okay, honey, it's okay. Just wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, let's just take a minute, okay? Um, you, look, you have something to say. I have something to say, all right? So let's just, let's just talk, okay? If, if there is something that I didn't fill out correctly on this, or if there's something I left out, or something maybe you want me to write on there, just tell me what to write on there. I'll write it on there. I'm sorry. You're not being fair. This isn't fair. This financial institution cannot endorse pornography. Stop saying Try that! Will you quit you saying pornography? Why are you doing this please, to me? I'm an actor. Please. I'm sorry. So I think I think like for a lot of the at least the first half of Boogie Nights, Book Swope operates as this kind of comic relief character because he's always trying to find a new look. Like he's he's definitely trying to get out of porn and follow his dreams of like providing people the best equipment to listen to country music on um, yes. <laughs> and he's always he's always like he's either he's dressed as like rick james or a cowboy or whatever and then it eventually kind of basically a side story that has no real relevance to the plot or story of the main movie in general and it could easily have been cut but i'm glad they didn't because it makes the story feel more real and it's pretty wholesome considering that Book Swope basically robs a donut shop by accident to finance his store <laughs> and uh, it's like um, Reed Rothschild John C. Reilly's character wanting to be a magician or Maurice who's played by Luis I have Guzman here it's actually Guzman Luis Guzman opening a nightclub with his recently arrived brothers from Puerto Rico and what I love about Boogie Nights is that against basically all of the odds is that everything kind of works out mm. like nothing world ending or like really bad like life-endingly bad happens to any characters except for the pedophile which um which is something boogie nights actually shares with uh magnolia on that count mm. um and 
I think Boogie Nights is kind of similar in some respects to Licorice Pizza in that it tackles like a controversial or taboo topic, but never really dra- addresses the climactic the consequences of it in a climactic way. The fact that pinball was illegal for so long. Exa- in yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it's just not anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah, everything just works out. And it's it's a film that feels just feels feel so lived in by all of its characters. And like every every everyone in this movie just feels real, like Buck Swope, Dirk Diggler, Amber Waves, Little Bill, who we've talked about in our William H. Macy episode. So I won't spend too long on this movie. But yeah, I think I think um and just seeing uh, like uh, Buck open his store, ble- dressed as a cowboy, blaring country music, is uh, it's it's one of the real highlights of the of the ending of that movie for me. Yeah. After all of the misery of like the the three years of the eighties that they spend just doing cocaine and f- fucking up their lives. Yeah, and no, for you're totally right. That wholesome is the word for Cheadle mm. in Boogie Nights, which yeah. is I actually think is the real strength of that movie is that. It sort of is this weird movie about family. <laughs> yeah, it's about yeah, porn. Yeah. It's just like teeming with life and so many, like every character in the movie has like in, has an interiority. You know, you can make a movie about any of them and it'll be really yeah. good to watch. Yeah, exactly. You know? Like yeah. The, the only reason he like gets with his wife is at the 1980 New Year's party where he's dressed as, I think it's Rick James. And uh, she's like, oh, Rick James? And he's like, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Will we move from one auteur to another? Go Talk for about it. Mission to Mars. Oh, wow. Yes. So this is set in the future of 2020, <gasps> which is so funny that this movie was made in 2000 and like we're, we're now past that. Yeah. And we didn't, haven't even made it to Mars Absolutely yet, despite not. Elon Musk's attempts. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but Don Cheadle plays astronaut Luke Graham, an astronaut who is commanding the first manned mission to Mars. But after reaching the planet, he and his team suffer a catastrophic and mysterious disaster of which he is the only survivor. And uh, struck on the red planet, his astronaut buddies on another spaceship, played by um, Connie Nielsen, Gary Sinise and Tim Robbins, of launch a dangerous rescue mission to retrieve Luke. This is a truly anomalous formation. It's unlike anything that we've seen so far. We're trying not to go too nuts up here, but we think there's a good chance that this could be water. Of course, if that's correct, then we may have found the key to permanent human colonization. Yes. Okay, we're ready to light this candle. Let's go to Mars. Yeah, this movie was uh, a bit of a disappointment in terms of like, Critically and commercially, like when it came out, it actually seemed for a while like Mars as a subject matter for a blockbuster was cursed because like Mission to Mars, Red Planet and Ghost of Mars all came out within two years of each other and all weren't financially successful or got good reviews. And it's odd to me because like The Martian, the Matt Damon movie that came out in 2015, made loads of the box office and got rave reviews. And well, I think it's like, okay, if I had to pick now between watching Ghost of Mars or Mission to Mars and watching The Martian, I'd probably pick the former too. I just think because in the case of Mission to Mars, you've got the goat. Brian De Palma, who made this, and like, oh, okay, just briefly on De Palma, came up in that seventies new Hollywood wave of filmmaking, like with people like Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, and is as good mm. as any of those people, but because his movies are a lot more lurid than his yeah. contemporaries, a lot of even the even the Black Dahlia, the movie that got him kicked out of Hollywood, so good, yeah, still right? really good. <laughs> um, but there's like a lot of sex or violence. That movie's literally about the like most infamous. Murder, murder in, <laughs> yeah, in yeah. Hollywood history, yeah. And I think because of that, he, like he made a lot of hit movies like Carrie and Dressed to Kill and Scarface and The Untouchables, Carlitos Way. And but at the time of all those movies releases, I don't think they were ever really held in high as regard as like Scorsese's movies might have or Coppola's yeah. movies in the seventies. And people didn't appreciate how good they had it when De Palma was making a movie every two years, just because the output was so like entertaining, but also like artistic and weird at times in like a playful way, like. It wasn't a hit, but like Blowout is... About oh, as, Blowout is so good. It's about as perfect as cinema gets. So good. <laughs> Even like we talked about... Serial from, killer John Lithgow, what more do you want? <laughs> exactly. Like neo-noir, erotic thriller, body double, like we talked about briefly in our Barbara Crampton episode. Mm. Incredible. But um, Mission to Paris was the one of uh, the couple in his filmography I hadn't seen, and I wanted to fill the gap, but I was a little wary of watching it because it came out after his heyday, and at a glance, didn't sound too De Palma-y, and I think it was more of a commercial play than a passion project. Mm. He also said he came on board the project after another director had uh, walked away from it. Wes Craven. I think it was actually Gore Verbinski. <laughs> I was just guessing. It was Wes Craven. It would be a good shout. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it was Gore Verbinski I heard. But um, I'm so glad I watched it because, for one, it was a pretty good Don Cheetah performance, which I'll talk about. But also, um, you're literally seeing Japan the elevated script, which is a, a bit of a mess, both in terms of story. Because like, it starts off akin to like an alien horror before becoming like a survival rescue sci-fi in the vein of Gravity 
before suddenly becoming like 2001 A Space Odyssey in the last 30 minutes. And the movie's only like 110 minutes long. Oh, wow. And like also a lot of the dialogue isn't great because there's a lot of like exposition where characters like explain what's happening to each other in a way that like they should know this because they're the experts, but it's like, it's just for us at home, yeah, you know, yeah. which is a bit annoying. And but I do think like the spectacle of the premise is enough for De Palma to make this something like I think is very entertaining and like cinematic. I'm going to just talk about like Cheeto scenes from the perspective of De Palma's direction because like the first shot of the film is amazing it's like this static shot of a sky as a rocket shoots into it and explodes and you're like oh my god but then it's revealed that it's a firework that's being lit at a barbecue party being held to celebrate Cheetah's character Luke going into space and the barbecue there's this like glorious unbroken tracking shot like introducing you to all the main characters and everyone's having a great time but then there's this odd kind of jarring cut at first that feels strange because it cuts to like it's still in the barbecue but it cuts to like Don Cheetah who's at the other side of like the party but you realize it's foreshadowing how he's going to be separated from all the others uh, after yeah. you know this disaster, okay. his clever. astronaut team yeah. experiences on Mars. And at the barbecue, we have this like nice little scene with his son who's sad he's going away. And the kid's like, who's going to read to me? We'll never finish Treasure Island. And yeah, he promises tenderly that like he'll read a bit of the book every night in space. So it'll be like they're reading it together. And he's like, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of anxious to see how old man Gunn got marooned on that island. And yeah, cheers the sun up, but, you know, watching, you're like, something bad's going to happen to Cheetah's Luke. Like, he's going to get marooned. He's going to be old man gun. And instantly you're rooting for him, especially then, like, after a couple of scenes, like, he has with, like, Sinise and Robbins, where you see that they're kind of, like, best buds and, like, establishing their connections to each other. But, uh, yeah, from there, like, cuts to Mars, and just, like, the colors, like, pop off the screen. Like, it's such an antidote to how gray movies tend to look now. Mm. Like, it's just, like the red will like sear into your retinas and yeah basically like Luke and his crew are on Mars and they discover this weird rock formation and while investigating it this weird vortex comes around of the rocks and you know this is 2000 so the CG isn't great but I think what makes it effective is that like the colours are so gorgeous and because it's genuinely mysterious what's happening and Tapama does this smart thing where he keeps coming back to close-ups of Luke and his crew they're not even scared at first they're more just like looking in like sublime awe Perhaps for a little too long because yeah. <laughs> I was a little bit like, this is freaking weird, you know? The Vortex begins to like pull them into it and like cause rocks to like smash into their helmets. And Ooh. I think Cheeto kind of anchors the kind of weightless CGI in something human because like we see on his face the moment where he turns from like, wow, to like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and also weird about the sequence is that like my copy of Mission to Mars, like I have on DVD, is rated PG, but uh, a character gets their arms and legs ripped off in the Vortex. <laughs> <laughs> and, like the movie has like quite scary moments and I won't give specifics but one of the main characters like shockingly dies in quite an emotionally grueling sequence at about the halfway point oh, wow, um, so okay. it like goes kind of hard but yeah just on the vortex bit I was a bit worried then that from there Cheadle would be out of the movie but Sinise's character is a widower whose wife was in the space program with him and like throughout the movie he's constantly like watching home videos of them together and you see like Cheadle in those scenes and Robbins mm. and there's a kind of a nice bit where Cheadle is saying to them like when he's two finally get up there it'll prove once and for all there really is no intelligent life on Mars <laughs> but I think by virtue of the movie's odd tonal shifts and structure like the rescue team for Cheadle for Cheadle's character Luke makes it to Mars with 45 minutes left to go in the movie's runtime and from there there's some really good stuff where you get to see the, kind of the impact months alone on Mars had on Cheetah's character because um, they meet <laughs> Cheetah's Luke now sporting an afro and a beard like he looks really unkempt and like he sees Gary Sinise's character and just attacks him with a pickaxe and she starts <laughs> screaming you're not here you're not here and you know Sinise mentions the thing about reading Treasure Island with his son and like it snaps him back and um, he starts like laughing and sobbing at the same time it's really good and you know, there's a couple of scenes after that where you get you really feel the weight of all the time Luke spent alone. Like his communication skills are shot. Like he's always rambling, repeats himself, sort of struggles to communicate clearly. Mm. And there's this really pulpy bit where Connie Nielsen's like, long-term exposure to low gravity can have an adverse impact on the brain. Or he could be suffering from some form of asphyxia. And Sinise is like, or maybe his whole crew died and he's been marooned alone on Mars for like a year. <laughs> and like, I like The Martian, the Ridley Scott movie with Matt Damon, like just fine. But one of my issues with that at the time was that like, I never really felt like Damon's character was in any real jeopardy because yeah. like, if I recall, like it's been a while since I've seen it, but he seemed pretty chipper like throughout his time on Mars. Yeah, yeah, for and the most part, yeah. I just never really kind of believed that he wouldn't be saved. Yeah, and also he was the only one fucking left. Is it all gonna, is it, was it all just gonna go wrong? For yeah. this one man on Mars? No, no obviously he's going to be saved. For sure. What is this, a Lars von Trier sci-fi movie? <laughs> but um, I do think, like, Cheadle manages to convey, like, how the loneliness of that 
experience would drive you mad. Mm. And I actually read that Cheadle slept outside by himself to get a sense of the environment and the isolation, which I think actually helps in the performance. I think what slightly undercuts Cheadle's great work is that in a couple of scenes later, like a bit of time has passed and Cheadle is all clean shaven and Sinise is like, how are you feeling, Luke? And he's like, good, lighter. And then that's just the end of that. Like okay. he's just back to normal. <laughs> <laughs> which I think seems a little easy and robs yeah. the movie of a bit of tension. So like, there's plenty of reasons why I can understand why people might not jive with Mission to Mars completely. And at the end of the movie, you, you learn that whatever was behind the vortex was benevolent. But it doesn't really explain why like, it murdered viciously all of Luke's crew. Yeah. But there's a lot in the movie that's cool. And I, I think the last 30 minutes genuinely do feel like Brian De Palma doing his own version of 2001 A Space Odyssey. But because it's him, it's like less esoteric and there's like more blockbustery action and energy. And I, I think I suppose why I liked about the movie, aside from Chuda, was just how much I felt De Palma in it, in what could have been like a work for hire job. Yeah, you know? yeah that's fair. But uh, yeah. it's a kind of a cool movie. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. How do the Victorians invent time? Where do all those pirate cliches come from? Should we all read romance novels? Why are kids so obsessed with dinosaurs? What makes the perfect detective story? What happens to culture and society in a post-apocalyptic world where everything has stopped? Words to that effect tell stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts and at wttepodcast.com. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Uh, do you want to hit Ocean's Eleven? Yes, sure. Don Cheadle plays Basher Tall, <laughs> a cockney explosives expert hired by Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney, to help him rob Terry Benedict's, played by Andy Garcia, vault in Las Vegas. So this is a character uh, played by the American Cheadle, who is... Uh, a London Cockney, as I said earlier, who often speaks in rhyming Cockney slang, meaning most of his dialogue is pretty unintelligible unless he explains it himself or if you're versed in Cockney rhyming slang. And he's one of these guys that works more for the thrill of the job. You know, the action is the juice for him rather than the money and jumps at the chance to work with uh, Danny Ocean and uh, Rusty, uh, Brad Pitt's character, who he regards as proper villains. <laughs> That's all you're using your vent, right? Nothing else? Hang on. Are you accusing me of booby trapping? Well, how about it? Booby traps are Mr. Tar style. Isn't that right? Fashion. Peck, ATF. Let me venture a guess. Simple G4 mainliner, back wound, quick fuse, with a drag under 20 feet. Yeah. Let me ask you something else. Did you search this scumbag? Booby traps on this person? I mean, really search. Not just for weapons. Stand back. Oi! Here we go. Go find Griggs. Tell him I need to see him. Who? Just find him, will ya? Hey, Ben. Hey, Russ. I've asked him to put something together before I just slipped him. It's done. Hey, it's done, you pal. Yeah, he's waiting around the corner. Oh, it's terrific. It'll be nice working with proper villains again. Everybody down! Get it! <laughs> they weren't expecting that shit. <laughs> What's what's weird about the character, other than the fact that it's an African-American man doing a Cockney accent, is that he's an explosives expert or munitions expert or whatever. But he never, outside of like the first, his introduction where he's arrested 
blowing open a safe in a bank job. He never actually uses explosives in any of the three films. <laughs> like in uh, in Ocean's Eleven, he detonates an EMP to cause like a power outage in Las Vegas. Ocean's Twelve, he tilts a building. Uh, the guy in Planter Rob, and in Ocean's 13, he simulates an earthquake using a massive drill. Three heist oh, movies, yeah. and basically no fireworks at all, which is, seems strange. Even Logie, Logan Lucky had a bomb go off, although in a classic switcheroo, the Southern Fried Expert was played by a British man, Daniel Craig. See, here's the thing. Soderbergh is very weird about accents. Like, I think he thinks people doing stupid accents is funny, because Seth MacFarlane in Logan Lucky is also doing a crazy accent. But here's the thing. All three of them are funny. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. So he's right. <laughs> um, a lot of other movies would have taken the lazier approach when it comes to casting. Like, oh, we've got two like fast-talking black characters in this. Let's just get Bernie Mac and another African-American comedian. Whereas instead, they hired Bernie Mac, who's great, uh, and Don Cheadle, who is playing like a co- a, a Cockney. English black man and it's just a good way of like um, uh, making these two characters who in a lot of lazier movies would have been like similar completely different in the way that they are like fast talking and you know and casting John Cheadle as like a, a cockney munitions expert is one of the strangest choices in a series of strange movies I suppose at least now there are British black men in Hollywood who can play these roles uh, thank you Idris Elba although it's easier to imagine Don Cheadle in this role than she would tell Edgy for to be honest yeah I imagine it's just that yeah the British thing is very strange I might, maybe it's the thing what you're saying where they like they didn't want to like make him too similar to Bernie Mac so they yeah. love the English thing but they also wanted Don Cheadle to be in it because he's in Out of Sight and Traffic so he's like a Soderbergh regular yeah that's true but it's, it's it is an odd decision but yeah. I, I don't mind it I, I think it's kind of funny I don't yeah know. I do too and I, isn't there more they, as it goes on in the franchise I could be wrong in this it's been a while since I've seen 12 and 13 but I feel like they have fun with the sort of reactions to John Cheadle's accent mm. like there's like meta jokes about it uh, I can't remember any in 12 and I haven't seen 13 right. but I do love the bit in 12 where the Scott Can and Casey Affleck's character are like oh you look 50 to Danny Ocean and he comes he goes up to Basher and he's like do I look 50 to you yeah mate of course <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think that's really funny can I talk about another kind of comedy crime caper The Guard yes go for it yeah, yeah. yeah. do you ever see The Guard I think I'm probably one of the only adults in Ireland that hasn't <laughs> you ever been to the States yeah once Disney World like when you were a kid with your family or something no no this was last year you went with a girlfriend no god no you went to Disney World by yourself yeah great guess I was got me a picture taken with Goofy and everything he's my favourite Goofy No, I can't tell if you're really motherfucking dumb or really motherfucking smart. Yeah, this came out in 2011 and was written and directed by John Michael McDonough, who's the brother of Martin McDonough, who made In Bruges. And like, similarly to In Bruges, The Guard is a crime comedy about two mismatched people stuck together that is quite swaggery and sweary, but I think ultimately reveals itself to have quite a bit of heart. Mm. Brendan Gleeson plays Garda, Jerry Boyle, who works in uh, Connemara and Galway, which is presenting the movie as being pretty quiet with not a lot mm. for a cop to do and perhaps out of boredom you know he's not married he's single doesn't seem to have a lot of friends or because he's trying to cheer himself up because his mother played by Fiona Flanagan is dying yeah he's kind of let his standards slip in terms of the work uh, the movie begins with him taking drugs while on duty that he stole from the victim of a drunk driving accident I've seen that bit Yeah, I've seen that, like the first <laughs> five or ten minutes of the movie he also loves prostitutes and doesn't try, seem to try and hide it and though he does clearly possess an intelligence and at times shows he can be quite good at the L police work, uh, he generally acts like a jerk to people, saying the most outrageous things to his colleagues and people he works. He comes across in his line of work just to try and get a rise out of them for shits and giggles. <laughs> but this is all disrupted upon the discovery of a dead body that's linked to a th- trio of drug traffickers played by uh, Mark Strong, Neem Cunningham and David Wilmot, who have arrived in the area to organize a massive international drug shipment. This results in the FBI sending a serious by-the-book agent to Connemara named Wendell Everett, played by Cheeto, who ends up being paired with Boyle. And so it's basically like your, your buddy cop fish-out-of-water yeah. story in which this slightly crooked, unorthodox, but ultimately well-meaning white local Irish Garda teams up with this more conventional, no-nonsense, black American G-man and like they have to take down some criminals. In the heat of the night. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of kind of like references. The McDonough's are the best at 
throwing in a sort of intellectual reference in a way that actually doesn't just feel like oh, we're we're showing off how smart we yeah, are. Yeah, you know, because yeah. there's a bit where um to throw them off the scent that the killing was linked to drugs, David Wilmot <laughs> he kills the guy and then like puts loads of occult stuff around <laughs> and he writes five and a half on the wall and they're like there's a movie called Eight and a Half, Fellini. There's a movie called Seven. And he's like, are you going to keep mentioning movies that are named after numbers at me? And at the end of it, they're like, just want to ask, why Five and a Half? And he's like, oh, I was pissed. <laughs> it's great. I just want to say, Brennan Gleeson is one of the best living actors, let alone Irish actors. And the character of Jay Boyle is probably one of the best he's played. Like, the start of the movie, he's so like crass and confrontational. Yet you end up forgiving him for all these things, partly... Because he's ultimately revealed to be like the most ethical Garda on the force presented in the movie mm. by its end. Because like everyone he works with ends up being paid off by the drug smugglers to turn a blind eye to his activities. And he doesn't despite being blackmailed and bribed. And yeah, he goes after them with the help of Cheeto's FBI agent. And like so good at making you care, even when Boyle is doing his shtick of saying like deliberately on PC comments. There's always this kind of glint in Gleason's eye giving an impression to audiences that of why Boyle might be acting this way like it could be like his way of showing disapproval of what's happening or he feels he's being condescended to and just wants to make the other person doing it uncomfortable yeah. or he's trying to console someone and make them laugh like it's all unspoken it's just on Gleason's face it's really cool but because Gleason's so great in the movie and his character is so big in terms of personality and story like he is the titular the guard it could be easy to overlook or appreciate the excellent work Cheadle does in the movie providing this kind of beautiful counterbalance because mm. Gleason's character is very unpredictable in the movie to the extent that, like, there's this bit where Mark Strong bribes Gleason's boss, who's played by Gary Lydon, and we find out after that the boss was like, I can keep all my force in line, except Boyle. I can't tell him what to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> who knows what to do? Like, because Boyle's got, like, a wild card, and basically everything he says to Everett is crazy <laughs> or kind of like a weird non sequitur. Like, uh, Boyle asks Everett if he's ever been to Ireland before, and to be polite, he asks Boyle back, you know, if he's been to America, and he's like, I went to Disneyland, and... Everett's like, with your family when you were younger? And he's like, no, last year. And he's like, did you go with your girlfriend? He's like, God, no. He's like, see, <laughs> he get, he's growing like more incredulous, Cheeto. Mm. And he's like, you went to Disney World by yourself last year? And he's like, yeah, I got my picture taken with Goofy and all. He's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Another example later on is like, Cheeto's Everett comments that like, he sees um, Boyle swimming in the morning. And he says to like, Boyle, like, you seem like a really good swimmer. And he's like, yeah, fourth in the Olympics in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, bullshit. I'm not sure. Which is a, a thing that pays off beautifully at the film's end. Like one of those things where like if I was a screenwriter and I did it, I would like champagne. You know? <laughs> um, there's another bit where um, they're drinking in a bar together and they're kind of like hit a impasse in their investigation. And Boyle asks Everett if he did crack before. And Everett's like, I wouldn't tell you if I did. And he's like, he's like yeah, I did. They say if you have one hit, you're hooked. That's only shite. It's propaganda they sell to the kids. <laughs> and Everett like, says kind of drunkenly, like, you are, certainly are an unconventional police officer. And Boyle says, thank you. And he's like, I did not mean that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> In all Cheadle and Gleason scenes, like, obviously the dialogue is great, but I think what makes it more hilarious and have stakes is that, like, Gleason's anarchic, cheeky, like, I don't give a toss what you think kind of attitude is clashing with Cheadle's kind of, like, controlled, slightly uptight respectable figure of authority because like I think you need Cheeto's Everett to feel like authentic and genuinely shocked at what Gleason's character is saying so that it has impact and because this is like a buddy cop movie I think you also need Boyle and Everett to feel completely different like chalk and cheese so that when they do begin to kind of warm to each other like it, it feels like you've been on a journey yeah you know? yeah absolutely and like Cheeto and Gleason feel very different in the movie not just because of the actors and their cultural differences or the characters or what they say and how they say it it's also kind of in like the subtle ways they like move through scenes like during their breakfast together when they have the conversation about swimming Cheadle is like delicately like sipping an espresso and has ordered this like beautiful like croissant that's like beautifully mm. framed on the table he's like sipping it in like this very like precise way whereas like Gleason is just like tucking into this like messy like full English breakfast yeah. <laughs> full Irish Stephen please no he'd beans on he's it beans on it yeah Jesus. which is shocking this is the other scene too where Cheeto's character orders like an espresso in a pub and is carrying it one of those like small plates over to a table where Gleason's like with a pint of Guinness and like just <laughs> knocking back whiskey chasers. Cheeto has some other like really good moments of playing bewilderment with other characters. Like there's a bit where he and Gary Lyon's character are singing together and Lyon's like, when you hear tell of someone being liquidated by the mob, does that mean they've been turned into liquid? <laughs> and Cheeto's like, Haha. and then he sees that Lyon's serious and he's like, no, it's, it's they've just been killed. <laughs> and Lyon's like, yeah, I suppose it would be time consuming, you know, like turning someone into liquid. <laughs> Cheetos just like pulls such a good like puzzled face that yeah. like I'm surprised it's not a gif. He I love those moments in movies where someone says something and, and then the other character's like, yeah, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, Cheeto gets like the last shot of the movie, which without spoiling is this lovely moment where he's 
feeling a little downbeat as a result of what happened in the film's climax, but is then reminded of something that was said earlier in the movie that gives him a bit of hope. And it's just this close-up on Cheeto's face with no dialogue. And we see this character who throughout most of the movie had been like quite stern and barely smiled, just like briefly like crack this kind of like crooked grin on his face. And it's not like a full smile, but mm. it's like kind of a half one before the movie cuts to end credits, which just feels very satisfying because like, it's optimistic and is a lovely bow on the story, but also leaves like a little something up to like viewers' interpretation yeah, in a good yeah. way. And um, I just think Cheadle should be given some praise for just choosing to be part of this Irish movie. Like he executive produced it. Oh wow! Even though he's not really the lead, and it probably had something to do with Martin McDonough, he who also executive produced the movie coming off of In Bruges, but. I, I imagine just another factor was Cheeto reading the script and just thinking like this is something special yeah, you know yeah, and um, I saw a quote from him talking about making the guard which is funny like he, he's in Mission to Mars as well and he describes Connemara it's like, it's like Mars it's another place it's vast it's stark there's stone walls people kind of said well this is my property line why? well I put a wall there <laughs> <laughs> pretty good yeah, fair enough yeah. um, do you want to hit Space Jam? Yes, well, no, but yes, I will. Don Cheadle plays Al G Rhythm, or Algorithm, a self-aware AI who takes over the Warner Brothers serververse in which he has trapped four-time NBA champion LeBron James, played by LeBron James, who must compete against Rhythm's goon squad with his hastily recruited toon squad in order to earn his and his son's freedom. Everybody happy, huh? Everybody, everybody having a good time? Yeah, you're having a lot of fun out there? Because that's all that matters, right? Is that you're having fun? That doesn't matter at all! What matters is that I win this game! Oh, and you, Dom. How are you losing at your own game? For server's sake, I didn't even think that was possible! I expected a lot more out of you, son. Get your head in the game! I need to win! Maybe your dad was right about you. Letting you be you was a mistake. So it's strange that the film's villain, first of all, is an artificial intelligence because it seems like it was written by an AI. And just on Cheadle briefly, who it's not not a not a huge role, uh, even if he is the villain, because mostly it's it's just kind of a CGI deep fake Cheadle. Either it's either his giant head, sometimes he's human, but other times he's just this massive. CGI creation that's playing basketball against LeBron James for a reason that is fairly simple but is not something I want to think about too long. Like, I don't think any actor ever really debases themselves and I don't think Cheadle does here either. Uh, well, listen. What there a beautiful are some, way to start the yeah. <laughs> sentence. But. Because he probably, considering he probably laughed all the way to the bank after this and I think with that said, his performance is stilted and weird with every interaction with James or his in-film son coming across as a computer trying to pretend it's human for the benefit of the person talking to it. So it's kind of like when, even if not as poetic, similar uh, in the same way that a car and a boat are similar to HAL 3000 singing Daisy in mm. uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is the second time this got mentioned on this episode, weirdly enough. And just on the film itself... Uh, I don't know if there's a better example of our apparently IP-obsessed culture than this film, or if one could even be made at this point. Uh, Warner Brothers just assumes that we care about seeing King Kong, the Iron Giant, four versions of the Joker, the Scooby-Doo gang, and the Droogs from A Clockwork Orange, which Stephen's wearing a a t-shirt of now, all together in weird gif form at a basketball game played by the Looney Tunes. The Warner Brothers characters show up, and only King Kong and the Iron Giant are actual animated the rest of them are just these kind of repeating loops yeah that's the thing I think I would have been a lot more interested in the movie if they actually like they're referencing the Matrix actually got Keanu Reeves to shoot new Matrix footage you know what I mean like I think that would have been actually kind of cool yeah it would have been it would have been a knocked it out of the park if they had gotten Joaquin Phoenix in to reprise (laughs) his role as the Joker he won a second Oscar yeah my son can watch this movie in (laughs) four years when he's grown up Uh, and like the Looney Tunes are designed for short form animation not for overextended movies that designed to sell people Nikes and convince us that we need to see King Kong fist bump the Iron Giant. And just like, in terms of this like universe building thing, what no one seems to get about like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is the most popular and successful film universe to ever exist, is that those characters already exist in a universe together. So it makes logical sense for them to interact with each other. The same can't be said just because Warner Brothers own both Austin Powers and Rick and Morty. Hmm. And it, 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 it's just annoying that people keep trying to do this. For sure. Yeah, and, but anyway. was, wasn't this also a very, like, troubled production in that, like, it had a, a director who left pretty early into it? And then... 
Yeah, so Justin Lin left, I think. Or, uh, I, listen, the script is written by like six people and it's been in kind of quasi-development since for twenty yeah. over 20 years, 26 years, since right. 1996. I paid money for this pile of shit. <laughs> in fairness, it was a birthday party and there was a bit, a bit of drink taken in the cinema screen, I won't lie. But it didn't improve things. <laughs> I'm kind of bummed that like the movie that I'm about to talk about didn't come out in cinemas, but Space Jam, A New Legacy did. Yeah, well... That's a major problem with cinema today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I want to talk about uh, No Sun Move, which is kind of a rarish lead role for Cheeto. Like, occasionally he'll play the lead, but um, not often. Like, it's the first time he's playing a lead in a Soderbergh movie. Yeah. He stars as Kurt Goines, a small-town gangster in 1950s Detroit, who just after being released from prison, is hired alongside Italian gangster Ronald Russo, who's a play by great Benicio Del Toro. They're hired by the shadowy man, played by uh, Brendan Fraser, for a mysterious job. Basically, they're tasked with holding the family of a businessman, who is uh, played by David Harbour, hostage, in order to get him to steal an important document from his boss. Basically, the plan goes to hell. <laughs> yep. the, these two lowly gangsters, Goins and Russo, um, Russo being quite a prejudiced man to boot, um, <laughs> wind up forming this kind of uneasy alliance to try and turn the situation to their advantage. Said a man wants to see me. Ali Albert. Can't come in here. What is he, white? Oh, boy. So, what's the score? We're sending a man that works in an office to pick something up. You are part of a babysitting team watching his family while he does it. Good morning. Everything is normal, except. What do you want? Is that something you'd say? Normal Monday? I'm gonna shoot you right now. This came out last year digitally in Ireland. Again, like Devil in a Blue Dress, it's this sort of throwback to old noirs in terms of like style and story, but has themes which are contemporary about race and class. And a fucking stacked cast. Oh, absolutely. Boot. Yeah, because it, like, it's directed by Steven Soderbergh in his kind of recent period where he's putting out one or two movies a year, shoots the films on a um, very small budget, which allows him to sort of retain control over the end product. And, like, he shoots them very quickly, so they have this sort of zippy energy. But, like, because of his reputation, he can attract amazing an amazing cast and, like, find distributors for it. So, like, No Sudden Move, you've got also Matt Damon, John Hamm, Amy Simons, Ray Liotta, Julia Fox, Kieran Culkin. Kieran Culkin. And... Yeah, Bill Duke was the one I was most surprised about. Bill Duke and Brendan Fraser. Bill Duke, weirdly, also been in... He was in the other Soderbergh movie as well, um, High Flying Bird. Oh, the basketball movie yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I will say, I watched this for the first time last year, and the first time I watched it, I was a little underwhelmed, partly because I had such big expectations for it, given who was involved and the noir aspect of it. But I think on first watch, I came a little too bogged down in trying to follow and solve the mystery of the movie. And I do appreciate... What I appreciate about Soderbergh is that like he doesn't really dumb down for viewers. Like He's kind of like, as you, when you're watching his movies, like, you at home, I keep up, you know? Yeah. And indeed, like the first 20 minutes of No Sudden Moves, characters keep mentioning the names of four other different characters, like Aldrich Watkins, Frank Capelli, Mel Forber, Naismith, before they're seen in the movie, which can be a lot to kind of like yeah. keep track of. And having seen it twice, like I do think the plot does all come together satisfyingly by the movie's end, but there's a lot of balls in the air and like different suitcases full of money that you're left to track in the climax to the extent that I first time watching it I was a little confused yeah. as to who was um, winning essentially um, in the games of kind of intrigue and yeah this movie has like a MacGuffin as well which is this document that's like really built up and while the reveal of it is smart in hindsight and ties the movie nicely to the era in which it's set it's a little underwhelming on a first watch because I've seen movies like Kiss Me Deadly, which has a similar MacGuffin, this box that's it's revealed in the end to be holding unstable radioactive isotopes, which cause people to burst into flames. <laughs> in No Sudden Move, it's corporate plans, you know, so right, a little yeah, bit like, mm. yeah. that's it. I wanted to watch it again because it got really good reviews and I usually have a lot of time for Soderbergh and I'm kind of glad I did because what I realized on a second watch is how pretty much all the working class characters in this movie are so unhappy and basically the events of the movie all spiral from them desperately seeking kind of money or the things that they think will make them happy. There's just this sort of like air of sadness yeah. <laughs> that radiates off the movie. And a lot of that is like on Cheeto's kind of quiet but soulful performance because the movie has this lovely kind of simple intro of him it sets up the character so well. He's just like walking down um, the street as dawn breaks and over this kind of like funky noir score and like the credits and he's just constantly like looking over his shoulder with these like big expressive eyes and uh, like a car drives past and he like puts his head down and his character is always like observing kind of intensely his surroundings like he doesn't talk a lot his interactions with others are very kind of clipped 
He never reveals too much about what he's thinking. And when he does talk for the first time, he has like a quite raspy voice. And Cheadle's 57 now, I think. Mm. And I think he, he tends to usually play a bit younger than he is but because he's you know, so handsome. Yeah. But I hear, I think he's kind of owning the lines and creases in his face. Like he mostly wears a hat throughout the movie, but it looks like there's a little kind of even gray in his hair. Yeah. And um, this isn't a movie that's incredibly like sentimental and only really gives backstory if it's important to the narrative. But I think Cheadle does a lot of work conveying to the audience subtly kind of who Goins is and just his performance. Like, you know, he's this older black man in America divided by race and class who has lived a tough life and despite years being on the grind, doesn't really have a lot to show for it and is left just holding on to this kind of elusive sort of hope that one day, one big score, things will turn around yeah. for him. And like, we know all that about Goins even before other characters explained that, you know, on top of the struggles of being a black man in America in the 50s, like, he's persona non grata in Detroit because he tried to play two criminal gangs off each other, one run by Bill Duke, the other run by Ray Liotta, and, like, barely escaped with his life. And we also learned that he has this modest dream of buying back a piece of land that was taken from him, which is sort of spurs him on to be part of the heist. And before we even get any of that information, it's just all suggested in the way, like, Cheeto moves, like, he's suspicious of, like, his surroundings, talks in a way that's, like, brief but clear because he doesn't want to be misunderstood. Yeah. Has this kind of, like, beautiful, melancholic, like, wide eyes and... In terms of other characters bringing that similar sadness, Russo, played by Dino Dottore, is similarly dissatisfied with his kind of lowly status in society, which seems more to be down to his sort of destructive nature. He's sleeping with Ray Liotta's boss's wife, who's played by Julia Fox. He's an alcoholic. There's this great bit where he turns to Amy Simons's similarly dissatisfied housewife who's being held hostage and has just learned that her husband is having an affair. He sees that her dishes haven't been done like in the house, and he's like, I don't like doing the dishes either. And then he, apropos of nothing, he just says, what if you don't want the things you're supposed to want to in life? <laughs> <laughs> and then the scene just cuts. And um, yeah, there's this other great bit towards the end of the movie where David Harbour's character, after having been put through this whole nightmare short deal, just takes a long drag of a cigarette, turns to his wife, Pepe Simons, and says in disbelief, my God, it's only Tuesday. <laughs> this is all sort of subtext. But in the climax, it seems like Goins and Russo might actually get like the massive score they've been chasing. And it, the money is coming from this arrogant, insanely rich person played by an uncredited Matt Damon. But this businessman sort of bursts their bubble by saying like, I know you people think that you're playing by your rules, but let's be clear here. You do not make rules ever. You follow them. Even when you think you have autonomy, even when you think you have a control, that is an illusion. And I... And others, like me, created the rules in this world, and you are playing by them now, even if you walk away with my money. And I have a lot of money. I will continue to have more still. I work, it grows. I sleep, it grows. Without it's point, like, the movie reveals itself to be a story about kind of a group of social climbers coming to the realization that, like, the game of life is rigged to see them fail by yeah. forces beyond their control that they'll never understand. I know that sounds depressing, but I think the credit to the movie is that Soderbergh makes it kind of low-key a hoot. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's great just that, like, 25 years after leaving such an impression as Mouse, like the supporting character in Devil in a Blue Dress, it's nice that Cheeto has been given the chance to play a lead in Mm. another sort of similar throwback noir of the same vein. And I think it's because of, like, the consistently great work he's done throughout his career and with Soderbergh that he's uh, he's earned it. Yeah. And No Sudden Move is a little less mainstream and a little more sparse and less showy than Devil in a Blue Dress. So there's not really a lot of opportunity to Cheadle to bring the kind of like raw charisma that Denzel Washington brings to Devil in a Blue Dress. But he does have this like unbelievable line he delivers perfectly in No Sudden Move um, in that kind of tone where they're driving away after kind of being double crossed, him and Benito de Toro. And he's like saying to himself, like, try to kill me. Think you're the only one who can make a move. I can make a move, too. They can consider this a market adjustment. (laughs) Great line. Like unbelievable sounds great I can't wait to watch it I'm curious to see what you think of it because mm-hmm. it, I was a bit flummoxed by it the first time but going back to it kind of knowing what to expect I could appreciate more what it was doing yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah any other thoughts on Cheadle um, I will say that just when you mentioned the age thing and that he's 57 now uh, I will say that he does seem to be one of the only characters in the MCU with a bit of history in his face that is true yeah, yeah. that isn't like kind of dyed grey you know uh, Doctor Strange's little the bits in his uh, sideburns that are dyed grey or whatever or Jeremy I mean Jeremy Renner has it as well but he's kind of just going to seed a little bit whereas um, Don Cheadle just kind of looks his age is what I will say like when, uh, whenever it cuts to like you know he's in the massive steel suit that's black and grey flying along shooting missiles whatever and then it cuts to like the inside where he's like seeing all this all the numbers and holographic displays but he looks not like an old man but like you know, maybe he shouldn't be in this suit. You know, he already broke his back in it. Maybe he shouldn't be 
yeah. still in this suit. Not that I have an issue with it. It's nice to see, you know, a variety of age and uh, race in the MCU for what little there is. Yeah. I quite enjoy him in the MCU to the extent that, like, you kind of forget that he's in it because, like, I never think that they gave him, like, enough to really do to yeah, warrant it being yeah. Don Cheadle. Yeah. But there was that, is it Captain America Civil War where he nearly dies and suddenly yeah. you're like, not War Machine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Kind of, I am kind of curious to see what that show Armor Wars is going to be like if he's going to be the lead. You know? Yeah. I yeah. think it's a bit overdue. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Also, he's going to be in um the, I talked about it in like our best of the year episode when we were talking about what we're looking forward to. Mm, the Don DeLillo adaptation. The Don DeLillo yeah. adaptation of yeah. White Noise by Noah Baumbach, which I'm excited to see. Yeah. yeah. Rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Email I know the face pod at gmail.com. You know, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks, Johnny Fernandez, for editing and helping out running our socials. If you love the show, please consider joining five euro month to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find a special exclusive bonus episodes. We've multiple available now, including a couple in our Leading Legend series. So mm. we've done Brad Pitt. With more to add. With more to add. Andrew, where can people find more your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section, where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. And um, you can also check me out at joe.e, where I write about news and the odd entertainment story. See you later, Cinephiles. Bye bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.